This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Thank you so much for joining us today, Minister. Perhaps we can start at the very beginning. How did this bill even come about and was there a catalyst that prompted the government to act? Well, um, if you ask a, a Singaporean, you know, how uh, they feel about, um, you know, walking on the streets at night, um, the findings are very clear. I think about 97% would say that they feel safe. But if you ask uh, Singaporeans whether they are concerned about content that they come across online, actually a good 80% will say that um, they don't feel very comfortable. So there's a huge difference, a stark contrast. And if we ask ourselves why this might be the case, um, uh, some kinds of content will come to mind. Um, a few years ago, for example, there was a 14-year-old girl by the name of uh, Molly Russell. Um, she lived in the UK and uh, she had taken her own life. And when the investigations you know, took place, they uncovered thousands of images of self-harm that she had been looking at prior to her taking her own life. Um, every now and then, we also come across dangerous stunts, you know, blackout challenges, for example, that are being promoted. They are served to us as users on social media. And I think during COVID, uh, some of us will still remember something that was religiously very insensitive. You know, there was a concern at one time that we were running out of toilet paper and a particular image had appeared where they put the Bible in the Quran and says, this is what you can use. And that is something that is very offensive to the religious communities in Singapore. So when we look at all these content and we ask ourselves, uh, in spite of the fact that we have actually taken some steps to regulate the online space, is it enough and do we need to do more? I mean, um, some of us will still remember that um, Singapore was one of the first to introduce a personal data protection law. This happened all the way back in 2012. And then in 2020, we updated the law. In between, we've introduced POHA, the Protection uh, Against Harassment Act. And uh, we've also introduced POFMA and this year, FICA. I think we have to understand that uh, in spite of these moves, uh, from individuals' perspectives, from the perspective of communities, there are still issues concerning safety online and we have to be willing to do more. So earlier you mentioned you know, some of the concerning content that is permeating the internet, whether it's dangerous content or religiously insensitive content. I mean, we know that social media is such a fast-moving space and it's always described as very difficult to regulate, right? So given how quickly some of these trends, products and services can emerge and how quickly an obscure fad or a post containing hate speech, just how quickly those can go viral just like that, you know, how do we ensure that the authorities are able to keep track of such a quickly evolving space, especially, you know, maybe some of the murkier corners of the internet that perhaps as adults we're not quite as native to as perhaps our younger generation are? How do you think that will possibly work? Well, very fortunately, uh, amongst our public officials are also younger officers who themselves are digital natives and um, they are keeping an eye out for what's happening in the far reaches of the internet and also sharing with uh, other colleagues uh, areas that they think are concerning. But more importantly, um, I think the government has to be very open 
uh, in engaging with uh, a whole range of stakeholders. This could be groups of parents, this could be educators, this could even be uh, non-governmental organisations that have an interest on this topic, uh, interest in promoting mental wellness, for example. Uh, these are all the varied sources of information that the government can tap into to understand online developments better and then to also put the question back to these stakeholders, what are some of the ways in which you think we can you know, regulate this space and make it feel safer for everyone? So it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. It's going to be a very dynamic approach. You are absolutely right in pointing out that the digital domain develops very, very quickly. And actually around the world, there are not so many playbooks. It's not as though when we were building up physical Singapore, um, you want to know how to keep the road safe, you want, you want to know uh, how to make sure that uh, buildings don't topple over. Um, yeah, many other countries have already introduced you know, laws and regulation to ensure that uh, physical safety can be you know, widely available. So you can study them and you can draw references. In the digital domain, there are far fewer playbooks and uh, there is a fair amount of experimentation on our own part on what will work. So I suppose on the online space, there isn't really that sort of one-size-fit-all solution, right? Not at all. But well, if we go into the bill itself, you know, what, I think what looms large for a lot of people will be that $1 million fine. Mm -hmm. But Singapore will be taking it as a penalty of last resort. And unlike, like you earlier mentioned, some countries like Australia and Germany, we don't have a 24-hour takedown timeline. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like we're being a little easy on these social media companies? And how effective do you think our measures will be, given what we have discussed about the dangers of the internet? If and when the IMDA... Uh, decides that there is a piece of egregious content that has to be taken down. I can assure you that it will be a matter of hours that we will give the social media platform to comply. Now, how do we look at um, this matter of the penalty? Um, it will have to be taken in context. You know, firstly, it has to be proportionate to the kind of penalties that uh, uh, are uh, you know, imposed uh, in other similar laws. But I think more importantly, what makes the social media platform successful? It is the fact that there are many users on them. And the amount of reputational damage that can be exacted, you know, if a social media platform is found to have been, you know, too um, uh, kind of uh, unthinking in the way in which it carries out its systems and processes to protect the users. Um, it um, has not acted you know, in um, a sufficiently robust manner to deal with content that is flagged to them, you know, to be harmful, then I think the other users will take note. And if the other users then decide that this is really not a platform that they want to engage with so much, actually I think that the damage to the social media platforms will be even greater. So I would look at it in that light. So it seems the social media companies do have vested interest in ensuring the safety of their platforms. Were these one of the factors or some of the tensions that came into play when negotiating and working with these social media companies? I think especially in Singapore, a lot of these big tech HQs have their base here and they do contribute quite significantly to our economy. So I'm actually quite curious, how did you get their buy-in? How do we manage to negotiate and work with these social media giants? They were certainly very uh, interested in what we were up to. But I think the biggest challenge for us is in understanding uh, what the nature of the problem is. And then, uh, very importantly, understanding how the technology works. 
Because without uh, an appreciation of how content can go viral, uh, without an appreciation of um, you know, the kind of uh, mitigating measures that um, our colleagues around the world are also contemplating, and then studying their pros and cons, I think it, it will be very hard for us to move forward. Uh, one of the things we observe, for example, is that um, uh, in many countries, they try to tackle uh, a whole host of problems at one go. Misinformation, uh, data protection, uh, hate speech, they put everything into an all-encompassing law. And we found that that actually is a very unwieldy approach. It makes it um, very difficult for people to try and understand which parts of this law affects me and which part of the law does not concern me and what must I pay attention to, what must I focus on. And I think as a result of that, the tools that the uh, regulators put in place could sometimes also end up being a little too blunt, you know, too blunt. Um, and we decided that a more targeted, calibrated approach would serve our needs better. It's a little bit like uh, building blocks. You know, you build one at a time. And then as you go up, you understand, you know, how it could be disturbed. So, for example, earlier you talked about, um, you know, new kinds of services that are made available. And if they introduce new risk, it's a little bit like someone yanked out uh, a block and then the whole thing becomes unstable and you've got to try and find a way to insert something in again at the appropriate place in order to restore stability to that structure. That's essentially what we're trying to do. So in the case of, you know, when that block goes missing, things can change so quickly in that mm -hmm. space, right? Do you think that the, the laws are strict enough as is with the introduction of the new bill or do you think there is room for us to become even perhaps stricter or tighter in the future? The way I would look at it is that, you know, if you want to have a tree grow tall, then you need to have strong roots. And one of those aspects of the strong roots are actually your laws and regulation. So um, in digital, if we want to see Singapore and Singaporeans take advantage of all the benefits that they bring, then we mustn't shy away from growing those roots. And we mustn't, you know, uh, be too slow in growing those roots as well. So the way in which I would look at it is that, um, you know, the more we can strengthen the foundation, the better position we are to take full advantage of digital developments. So you mentioned changes also in sort of the global platform, right? And mm -hmm. Singapore isn't the first country to try to regulate social media and some other countries around the world, their attempts have been slightly controversial. I think what comes to mind for me immediately is Germany and their Network Enforcement Act, mm -hmm. which compels social media companies to take down hate speech or illegal content. So this bill of theirs has faced considerable criticism both internally and from the wider international audience. How do we intend to face such potential criticisms should they arrive on our shores? Was there a particular criticism that uh, you came across that uh, stood out for you? I think some of the concerns people had were that, like you said earlier, they were blunt and perhaps there were some concerns about censorship or how overly wide their policy was and then that sort of created a space where people felt that it was taking down things that perhaps shouldn't or needn't have been. Yeah. I think one of our takeaways when interacting with um, these uh, social media companies is this. Um, they tend to operate globally. And around the world, people have different expectations and norms are also not identical. So yes, they can uh, respond to our requirements to put in place um, standards you know, for content moderation. 
But even with the best efforts, um, it's very likely that they will fall short, simply because the nuances in each society uh, is different. The example that I shared with you earlier on um, this idea that uh, you could you know, use the Quran or, or, or the Bible as toilet paper, the degree of uh, you know, offence that it causes to our communities, that point is sometimes lost on a social media service. In some other context, um, this could be considered as, well, you know, just a joke, funny. But in our context, it's not just a joke, it's not funny, it's deeply offensive. And that is where I think we have to complement the systems and processes that we require the social media services to put in place with also the ability to act because we come across content that we know in our context needs to be taken down. So I think the two have to work hand in hand. Yeah. So I think one of the examples you mentioned earlier you know, was about children who are perhaps more vulnerable to influential content on the internet and some of this might be quite dangerous. And obviously policies that are on a government and sort of policy level are very important, crucial. And social media companies also do have a duty of care. I'm just wondering, Minister, what do you think is the role of offline measures, perhaps? At the end of the day, a child's first and most direct point of contact will be their family, their friends, their schools. Do you think there are any offline interventions that could complement some of these new measures that we're putting in place moving forward? I'm really glad that you brought it up. Um, I think, you know, we know intuitively uh, when we welcome a child uh, into the family, uh, we will look around the household and say, how do we childproof it? And uh, to some extent, um, this set of uh, uh, laws that we are putting in place is to childproof you know, the online space. Uh, on the other hand, we also know that um, you know, we cannot completely you know, prevent our children from trying things. And we also want them to acquire you know, enough um, understanding of the world in order that they can navigate it safely. So, you know, when a child is very little, you know, you, you, you know that they, sh uh, they, they should stay away from fire. But you need to teach them the concept of heat. So you give them something warm and then you, you know, show them, you know, when you touch this, this is what happens. And then you amp up the heat a little bit more. And then you reach a point where, you know, the child understands that, okay, this is dangerous really, this could harm me, right? And I think the same would have to apply. Um, in, uh, in, in how we guide our children to navigate um, you know, the internet safely. Um, if we you know, adopted the view that, you know, like if you, you, we would never send our children onto the roads without having you know, taught them how to you know, stop you know, where, where the traffic junction uh, says that we stop, right? And you, know, you teach them about the green man and you teach them about the red man. Um, these are the similar things that we are going to have to do. And so offline interventions, I think, are equally essential. Parents certainly, I think, uh, need more help in this regard. We appreciate very much the fact that there is a generation of parents whose children's involvement and participation in online media is at a very different level of intensity than, than they did. So the parents themselves are not so familiar with the tools Whereas, you know, in the physical world, we have great advantage. We know the physical world far better than our children. In the online world, it's the opposite. So the kind of interventions we need to put in place will include equipping our parents with better knowledge and understanding of the safety tools that are available on social media services. And then also guiding them in how they can uh, be a, 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 a source of uh, help to their children 
in terms of navigating this safely. I think this is very important um, to recognise that um, the knowledge gap between the parents and the children, and as well as youth, is not just in terms of their familiarity with um, the kind of services that are available and the features. It's also in terms of what kind of safety tools are available and can be used. And I think if we marry the two, we are much more likely to be able to ensure a safer environment for the youth and the children who will inevitably go online. I think it's very interesting you describe it as child-proofing a space, right? But it's a virtual space rather than a physical space. I'm just wondering, so as a parent yourself, were these some of the concerns when your kids started getting on the internet? And, you know, for you, did you feel like there were certain tools or, or resources that worked best for you or that really you felt sort of helped you in your journey? I'm a little more fortunate in the sense that my children were a bit older. And, um, you know, when they started, you know, to get online. Um, but I think intuitively, like uh, many other parents, uh, we all believe that uh, they shouldn't carry out their entire lives on the internet. I think there is something to be said about, you know, getting them to still enjoy physical interactions. There is nothing to replace, you know, human to human contact, face to face engagement. And um, it's, a, it's a challenge because parents obviously are also very busy themselves. And occasionally we do see you know, uh, parents who, in order to keep their children occupied, thrust into the child's hand uh, a device. Now that may be okay, you know, for a short while, um, but there will be, you know, concerns if um, the child spends most of his time, you know, online. And uh, we certainly hope that um, with the kind of programs that uh, we will put in place, um, together with the support of the uh, social media companies, we can enable parents to achieve a higher level of confidence in guiding their children and I think also that um, they can continue to bond with their children um, not just you know uh, online but uh, actually uh, in the physical sense as well. Thank you so much Minister. Minister Josephine Teo, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. See you soon. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the Audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.